the word of God. Romans 13, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Isaiah 5, 21 through 25. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Genesis 4, 1 through 12. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you all remain standing for one more moment so we can pray together and commit this time to the Lord? Father, thank you for reaching out to us uh, once again through the scriptures. We acknowledge that without the light of your word, we are lost in darkness, uh, disoriented and disfigured by our competing and often contradictory desires. So we ask that you would rearrange our disordered loves so that our hearts would be aimed back towards you as well as the things that you love. Soften our hearts, strengthen our faith, and deepen our surrender to you so we can live more faithfully in your world and so you can harvest more fruitfulness in us. We ask for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, good morning, everyone, and happy Sunday. My name is Ty. I'm a pastoral resident here at Denver Prez. Uh, If you're new with us today, welcome to our Sunday gathering. You've caught us in a new series on the seven deadly sins, 
that matches the unique moment that we're in on the church calendar. And that moment is referred to as Lent. So if you're not familiar with the church calendar, there's 40 days between the first Sunday of Lent, which was last week, and then Resurrection Sunday. So before we are lifted up into God's presence by the unforgettable triumph of the resurrection, we first have to step down into the wilderness, where Jesus' life was marked by hostility, rejection, and even abandonment by his closest friends. So that's, that's what Lent is about, uh, remember, remembering the trials and the suffering that Jesus faced his whole life, but particularly during those 40 days of prayer, fasting, and testing in the wilderness before his public ministry began. So Lent is a time for all of us to voluntarily embrace the way of the cross. You know, not just the victory of it, not just the high of it, but the low of it, right? The self-denial, the abstinence, the surrender of our disordered loves to God. Because we've been baptized into the waters of Jesus' death just as much as we've been lifted up into the, new, the newness of his resurrection life. So if you're disappointed with who you've become, if you're exhausted by your powerlessness to change, right, embarrassed by your feeble attempts at self-improvement, then this is actually a really great time to be with us in our faith community because we're all acknowledging our inability to change apart from God's grace. So we're not doing this series on the seven deadly sins because we want to shame you, right? But because abstinence, humble repentance, and desperately reaching out for God's embrace and transformative presence is what frees us from the debilitating weight of our dysfunctional desires. So we're going to dissect the sin of pride today, which we all have and which we should all want to deny more and more because the scriptures repeatedly say God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we'll meditate on pride in three different ways. Uh, first of all, by describing virtuous pride. And then second, by reflecting on pride and self-worth. And then third, we'll explore pride and envy. So let's begin with virtuous pride. I know that it's easy to get lost in the ugly and toxic sides of pride. And maybe that's because it's such a glaringly obnoxious yet strangely admired quality in many of our cultural icons, right? But I think there's a compelling moral reason to start with the healthy and dignified version of pride. Because tempered pride is actually a virtue. It's something to hold up, to aspire to, and to cultivate within ourselves. And there's also a theological reason to start with virtuous pride. So anytime you're talking about sinful pride, you have to understand that sin does not exist on its own. 
Okay, sin attaches itself to something good and then deprives that thing of its beauty and its usefulness. So we have to know what that ideal form of pride is so we can actually aim for that and then not just avoid the obnoxious form of pride we're used to once the deterioration of sin sets in. So one author I read this week put innocent pride in this way. Pride can take the form of proper satisfaction. Proper satisfaction in the achievement of excellence. In this form, pride is the virtue of the diligence. So the key there is that proper or fitting satisfaction, right? That sense of fulfillment you get when you incrementally push yourself towards that more thriving version of yourself that God actually wants you to be, right? Not because you want to be impressive or superior or because you want the bragging rights that come with success, but because there's something truly humanizing about that achievement of excellence when it's done as part of your growth and maturity in Christ. So what does virtuous pride look like in the diligent, the industrious, right, the hardworking people here at Denver Press. So it looks like the doctor who actively researches within her area of expertise so she can offer the best healthcare treatment plan possible for the well-being of her patients. It looks like the entrepreneur who sees a social good that's missing and creates a product that'll serve the needs of our common life together. It looks like the teacher, who is not only educationally effective, but attuned to her students' concerns, right? Shouldering the burdens they might have from a broken family or from a mental health issue, right? It looks like the lawyer, who carefully pours over a case so his advocacy is powerful and persuasive and justice-seeking for every person, right, regardless of their color, class, or creed. So pride, healthy pride, dignified pride, and the diligent is about perfecting your craft, whatever it is, so that your work becomes a labor of love uh, for the good and benefit of others, as well as the glory of God. And the satisfaction you get in perfecting your craft comes from that place where skill and determination meet to to fulfill your divine calling in the world. And that doesn't only happen in the workplace, right? It happens when a mother or a father says no to more employment responsibilities so they can spend that much-needed quality time with their kids, It happens when a husband or wife wakes up early to serve his partner by picking up around the house, playing with the kids, or making breakfast for his beloved. It happens when a friend answers your call or just shows up at your place to share your struggles and be God's comfort to you. You can and should have a healthy pride in your actions when it means you're fully alive to God and for others, right? So virtuous pride comes not from a high view of self, but from a fullness of soul, 
right? When your soul is full, you have a moderate sense of self-worth because faith knows how to lift you up into your true and authentic self without diminishing others who are also finding their meaning and their identity in God's story. Right? This is what Paul means in Romans 13.3 when he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So that's what we need to aim for, right? A soul-filled pride that blossoms from faith. So the question is, how does virtuous pride deteriorate into that loud, obnoxious form we're much more familiar with, right? And what happens to our self-worth once this deterioration sets in? So I think the first thing to say about sinful pride is that it moves away from that proper satisfaction of excellence when faith fades, right? And when faith fades, your soul also decays. It gets weaker and unhealthy, right? Infected with all kinds of vices because it's no longer facing outward and upward towards the life-giving God, but inward, right, and towards yourself. So when this, when this inwardness becomes more frequent, you become both ignorant and arrogant, okay? So, so there's a quote that famously captures the ignorant arrogance of pride. It goes like this, often in error, but never in doubt, right? I wonder if those words might be maybe a little too painfully true about you. Right, so to get an honest uh, self-evaluation and confront the subtlety of pride in your life, I want, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Okay, this is going to hit a little hard, so I'm going to say it gently. But Are you the kind of person who needs to be right? right? Who needs to prove yourself to others? Who needs to get the credit for every right move that you've made? Or are you enraged when someone doubts you because it feels like they're calling your brilliance or your effort into question? Or are you incapable of or unwilling to see the trail of mistakes you've left, your, you've left behind because you're certain it was somebody else's fault and not yours? Right? If some or maybe even most of that describes you, then that may be a sign that virtuous pride is deforming into sinful pride in your life. So if those words unsettle you a little bit, maybe it's because you're starting to become the kind of person the scriptures call wise in your own eyes, right? which is a kind of a blinding self-confidence that leads you to justify all of your decision-making, even when it's harming or damaging to others. So the prophet Isaiah gives us a graphic depiction of a whole group of people who have become wise in their own eyes. So I want you to listen to Isaiah 5, 21 through 25 one more time. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, 
who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. The Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. So I know it's not really easy to hear, but God deals with prideful people with judgments, right? Because the ignorant arrogance of pride of people who are wise in their own eyes turn every decision into some self-serving end, right? Since they only care about getting what they want, they actually open the doors of injustice. And this is why sinful pride descends into an ugly blend of narcissism and conceit, right? So when you're, when you're self-absorbed on the one hand and overestimate your worth on the other, you can justify all kinds of wrongs because all you see are obstacles and not people, right? Someone's standing in the way of you getting yours and you'll do what it takes to remove them so you can have what you want. So the self-centeredness of pride isn't just obnoxious, right? It's actually, it's actually poisonous, calling evil good and good evil in order to take whatever it is that I've set my eyes on. So for sinfully prideful people, their sense of self-worth doesn't come from faith, right? It comes from fear. The fear of not being enough, of being surpassed, of being uh, exposed as a fake, so pride comes from the fear of not being able to control the perception others have about you, okay? And the, the interesting thing to me about pride is that it can be both titanic and pathetic, right? So we're very familiar with the grandiose, self-congratulating pride of American idols, right? Just think of the, the cultural movers and shakers who claim all the credit want all the praise and recognition, all without lifting a finger, because what they really want is to add this accomplishment to their resume. So Titanic pride is in the habit of stealing all of the publicity, right? Because everything needs to be about them, about how incredibly successful, how indispensable, how fulfilling their life is, while letting you know at the same time just how lost, failed, and hopeless, you would be without them, right? You know what I'm talking about. People with titanic pride are so nauseously self-intoxicated that they can't say anything without congratulating themselves, right? But if you stop and think about it, there's actually something really weak and even pathetic about that because that craving to make yourself big actually comes from a place of insecurity and self-doubt. And that's because sinful pride is always compensating for something that's missing, right? And it tries to hide that emptiness by pretending to be full. So here's an example of a titanically pathetic, prideful person. Right, this is cited in a book I read in preparing for the sermon. So this is a real ad that was placed in the strictly personal section of the New York Magazine. So this woman, she wants to meet a man as remarkable as herself, so she writes this. Strikingly beautiful, Ivy League graduate, 
playful, passionate, perceptive, elegant, bright, articulate, original in mind, unique in spirit. I possess a rare balance of beauty and depth, sophistication and earthiness, seriousness and a love of fun, professionally successful, perfectly capable of being self-sufficient and independent, but I won't be truly content until we find each other. Please reply with a substantial letter describing your background and who you are, photo essential. <laughs> so clearly, clearly the self-portrait is filled with exaggerations about this person's appearance and character. Right? And that's what's initially repulsive and unbelievable about this piece. This person has no weaknesses, right? no flaws, not even a perceivable blind spot. But there's also a glaring inconsistency in her description that makes her pretentiousness just really kind of pathetic. How can you be both perfectly capable of self-sufficiency and independence while not being truly content until you finally find someone who will love you. So this woman is projecting flawless self-reliance when what she feels on the inside is inadequate and lonely. But she's compensating for those lowly feelings by making herself just unreasonably big, right? But she's actually small. She's small, and she's scared of her internal world, so she projects perfection into the external world, hoping that someone will find her worthy of love. So this is why another uh, theologian I read this week puts, puts it this way. Pride is part of a much larger temptation of self-rejection, of self-rejection. We have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable. Then, success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions to our desolate condition. So that's what sinful pride does. It preys on your sense of worthlessness, forcing you to act like a titan when what you really feel is pathetic. So underneath, hidden underneath pride is actually a weak soul, someone who's trying to throw off their sense of worthlessness by inflating themselves. And pride can take a really ugly turn once this titanic patheticness settles in and begins to define your self-worth. Then pride merges with envy to create something really toxic. And this is where I want to turn to the Cain and Abel story. So many scholars have noticed an intentional overlap of themes and languages that link the first rebellion narrative in Genesis 3, the Adam and Eve story, with the second rebellion narrative in Genesis 4, the Cain and Abel story. So in other words, these two stories are actually, these two stories of rebellion should be read together because they show the quick progression from the original sin of divine defiance to family murder. 
and what initiates that family rivalry leading to the first act of fratricide is an envious pride. And we know that's the motivation because John gives us his interpretation of this scene in 1 John 3.12. He says this, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. So the core trigger of envy is right there in those words. His actions were this, but mine were that. So envy arises when your self-worth feels threatened by another, when you perceive someone to have a higher self-worth than you. So it's comparison, right? It's comparison. Envy thrives off of comparison. It lives and grows in that feeling of disgrace you might get when someone else's skill, beauty, or integrity surpasses your own, right? That kind of envious pride inflamed within Cain when he brought some of the fruits of the soil and his brother Abel brought the best cuts of meat from his flock. But the Lord favored Abel's offering and not Cain's. So it was that sense of not being enough, right? Of being less than, of being outdone that enraged Cain and eventually resulted in the murder of his own brother. And remember, Cain is the older brother. And in ancient Near Eastern societies, being the older brother comes with its privileges, right? The older brother inherits his father's possessions and eventually his, his estate. So he's the legal representative of his father's inheritance. But the eldest brother is also uniquely dedicated to God because the firstborn male is seen as the best of the family's descendants. So he acts like a priest, or at least he's supposed to act like a priest to his siblings. But in Genesis 4, Cain, the older brother, gets rejected by God which to him feels like he's not only being disowned, but displaced from a position of prominence among his family, right? And the one to take the seat at his table is his own brother. Now, it's possible that Cain should have expected this displacement because he only brought some of his harvest to God, but Abel brought the best of his flock, which means Abel, not Cain, was acting the way a firstborn son should act. By dedicating the best of his labor to God, Abel was acting like the priestly heir to Adam's family. And that's when Cain's contempt for his brother was inflamed. Not only was God treating his younger brother like the privileged firstborn son, but his brother actually took on the responsibilities and blessings of that sacred status. And if we're honest, we let the same kind of rage and contempt kindle within ourselves. It might not be against a sibling, but it might, might be when a colleague gets promoted to that, that position that you were craving when a stunningly attractive person steals all the attention in the room, 
when that genuinely warm and outgoing person gets close to our friend, right? When that innocent person refuses to partake in the gossip and criticism of others at work. Or when your spouse exudes the character or spirituality we only wish we had. You know, when your children seem to somehow bypass all the insecurities that we felt as a kid. When your friend soars into a wealthy, successful career while our life path leads to financial instability, rejection, and continual job hunting. So envious pride, the pride of comparison and low self-worth, feels diminished by the good somebody else experiences. Sometimes that envy, envy leads to self-hatred, and other times it leads to other hatred, right? Either by rejoicing in someone else's misfortune, or at worst, by relieving yourself of that feeling of worthlessness with murder, the way that Cain did. Okay, I know that's heavy. How are we doing? I'm not going to leave us there. This is not the end of the sermon, okay? So what do we do if we're stuck in pride, right? If we're caught in the quicksand of comparative and envious pride. So we actually get the answer to that later on in 1 John. So soon after John tells us to not be like Cain, he actually invites us into deeper communion with God even when our hearts are filled with pride, envy, and contempt. So he says this in 1 John 3, 20 through 21. By this, we will know that we are from the truth and reconcile our hearts in his presence. Whenever our hearts blame us, God is greater than our heart because he knows everything. So the first thing to do when you have a blaming heart that knows its own unworthiness, is actually to bring that shame right into God's presence. Right there, you can not only deflate, but even settle down and resolve your pride and envy. Right, Bringing your self-worth into closer alignment with God's truer perception of you. Right, That's what it means for God to be greater than your heart. It means letting God name you as his precious, beloved, child, even when you don't feel worthy of it, because he knows everything, which means he's not exposing you as a fraud even more than your heart could, right? It means he sees the true you, right? The you he created from above, your true self that's being remade after the image of Jesus so that you can uniquely reflect him in ways that nobody else can. So the summons here is actually to prayer, right? Honestly dealing with your flaws in his presence because he wants to repair the ruins of pride. That's how you silence the voice of a blaming heart. And the other beautiful thing John says in verse 21 is that when we reconcile our hearts in his presence, we then get whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So look, God doesn't grudgingly hear your prayers, 
right? He's not offended by your pride-induced failures, right? He wants to set us free from sinful self-worth and envious rage. And he does that because we do the things that please him. What kind of things? Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's faith, right? Faith pleases God. Faith that God wants to embrace you even when you're convinced you're not worthy of him. Faith that he can heal and restore your fractured and distorted sense of self-worth, right? Faith that he hears our cries for transformation from pride and contempt to humility, service, and love, right? And God creates that faith in us by giving us his son, right, who undoes the envious pride of Cain. So whereas Cain compared himself with his brother and found himself threatened by inadequacy, Jesus, Jesus compared himself with us, his brothers and sisters, and found us in need, right? Jesus wasn't wounded by a false sense of, of pride and, and sibling rivalry. He was motivated by selfless love and abundance to take our wounds and our lack upon himself. So Jesus actually elevates us up to his firstborn status, exchanging our poverty for his wealth because his instinctive desire is to share his inheritance with others. That's why Jesus was always doing this crazy thing and going around and offering the good news of the kingdom to other people, right? He was inviting them and us to the new creation party where we get the places of honor at his feast because he wants to share his abundance with us. Right? That's where our souls get filled if they're weak and sick and unhealthy in prayerful contemplation in the presence of Jesus, who's not only the legal representative of everything that God owns, right? so he has the right to share God's possessions, but he's also the priest who gave up his own life, the most valuable gift that God had to secure our place as equal members of God's family, right? So we can rec reclaim that proper satisfaction of pride when our fulfillment comes, not from ourselves, right, improving our self-worth, but from resting, resting in the grace-filled self-worth that comes from belonging to Jesus, Right, and receiving the gift of his abundant inheritance just with the open hands of faith. Right, that's how God restores noble and virtuous pride in us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being a God who wants us to flourish and thrive. Without you, we would be lost in our pride, unwilling to give you the credit for every aspiration and talent that we have, and stuck in our inability to change. But by faith, we can trace every good and perfect gift back to you, expressing our gratitude for your transformative presence and living lives of fruitfulness in the Spirit. Thank you for this season of grace-filled self-denial in which you're inviting us into deeper communion with you. Help us not to be filled with ourselves, but to be filled with the Spirit. We ask for your help in all of this. 
In Jesus' name, amen.